Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. War warning. Joe Biden says a Russian invasion of Ukraine could come as early as February. Record revenue. Apple shrugs off supply chain issues to end the year on a high. And COVID cases and boycott calls. Just one week to go until the Beijing Olympics. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move at this Friday, yay, and one week to go before the Beijing Olympics begins. But the wintry games are already afoot on global markets, beginning with the Powell Peast, more like off-piste if we're talking about monetary policy. Stocks remain on a downward slope. Investors facing a few moguls even after a supplies U.S. GDP lift yesterday. Market volatility lurching like a illusion. No sign of ice in the energy market either. Brent hitting seven-year highs. And that, of course, raising fresh inflationary concerns. All this as the tech world applauds an expert triple axle from Tim Cook and the Olympians at Apple. Supply chain issues just a $6 billion mini-mogul for the firm when your market cap is, what, closer to $3 trillion. Apple set to rise some 3% at the open today, but otherwise the view pre-market remains toe-curling. Higher volatility and volatile action tech now trading a little bit low, as you can see, we'll call that flat. This after another sizable rally melted late yesterday with tech dropping almost one and a half percent. The Nasdaq on track for its fifth straight week of losses. It's now some 5% away from falling into what we'd call a bear market. So that's 20% drop from record highs. In the meantime, in Europe, a Friday feeling amid mixed GDP numbers, the German economy contracting more than half a percent last quarter due to Omicron-led restrictions. But the French and Spanish economies saw strong gains. Over in Asia, Japan bouncing back after three days of sharp losses. China, in the meantime, losing ground ahead of the week-long Lunar New Year holiday. Just another busy Friday. Let's get to our drivers. President Biden warning the Ukrainian president that Russia could take military action as early as next month. A senior Ukrainian official said a call between the two leaders, quote, did not go well, although the White House has refuted that. And in the last few minutes, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg detailed Moscow's latest military moves. They are deploying more troops, more heavy equipment, and now also thousands of combat-ready troops to to Belarus, also with uh, with uh, aircraft, helicopters, uh, and advanced uh, weapon systems, S-400, uh, and other uh, weapon systems into Belarus. Uh, so the military buildup uh, continues. At the same time, uh, Russia uh, was willing to meet us, uh, the United States, and uh, NATO allies uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and that's a good sign that, uh, that we sat down uh, in the same room and for hours addressed uh, uh, the situation in and around Ukraine and the security consequences for uh, uh, for all of us, for Europe. Uh. Kylie Atwood is live in Washington for us and Melissa Bell's in Kyiv. Melissa, I'll come to you first and I want to talk about that phone call because it ties to what we were hearing there from Jens Stoltenberg as well. Two very different perspectives, it seems, and at the core of that, the imminency of a potential Russian attack, something that the Ukrainians themselves have been at great pains in recent days to play down. 
Uh, that's right. We heard from a senior Ukrainian official saying uh, that the call hadn't gone well. On one hand, President Biden presenting the likelihood that an invasion could happen in February. On the other hand, Zelensky, according to that Ukrainian official, saying, look, tone down the rhetoric. You have to remember that for Ukrainian officials, for the Ukrainian government, all of this tension around the country is not good news for the economy. Uh, so there is that question uh, of what messaging goes out there. And that very forceful messaging coming from the White House, on one hand, has managed to bring allies together on the other uh, uh, for Ukrainians is of concern in terms of their own economy and the political situation here in the country. And we know that there is a divide, uh, Julia, beyond that phone call between the assessments of what's going on, on the ground. We also heard here in Kiev from uh, the Ukrainian defense minister who was speaking to the country's parliament earlier this morning, who said that as far as the Ukrainian assessment was concerned, uh, the military situation, the threat posed by Russia was not very different to what it was in the spring of last year. The only difference, he pointed out, going back to what we're just hearing from the uh, NATO Secretary General was that military buildup in Belarus. Other than that, uh, he said things were pretty similar. So yes, a different assessment and the danger, of course, uh, for the White House in particular and that very strong messaging it's had over the course of the last week, Julia, is that the longer time passes, the more time goes by, uh, the greater the likelihood that those kinds of differences of view will emerge and that unity that's been so crucial over the course of the last week will start to disappear. Not only between intelligence assessments between uh, the Pentagon and Ukrainian officials about what's happening over the border in Russia, but also actually between NATO allies. There's just been a phone call a couple of hours ago between the French president and the Russian president for the time being, Julia. We only have the Kremlin readout of that, but it's interesting, makes for interesting reading. On one hand, Vladimir Putin repeating what we've been hearing from the Kremlin these last few days from uh, Russian officials, that the official response to uh, the uh, uh, responses sent by NATO and the United States uh, to Moscow's demands uh, will still come, that we have to wait for that, but already saying that Russia was disappointed and that that core demand of theirs, that NATO guarantee that it will not seek to expand further eastwards and therefore not towards Ukraine, is not something that NATO or the United States would accept. Uh, Moscow, Vladimir Putin, expressing his disappointment about that. But the most interesting part of the phone call, perhaps, according to that Kremlin readout, was uh, Vladimir Putin saying that he was looking ahead to that dialogue between Europe and Russia that France has been calling for for some time. Emmanuel Macron spoke of it to the European Parliament last week. We've been hearing a little less about it because of that rhetoric coming from the White House, because of that need for unity amongst NATO allies. But we know that Emmanuel Macron is the European leader that is the most keen on having an open and frank and ongoing dialogue with Moscow, reaching out a hand. And that is a hand that Vladimir Putin appeared to grab in that phone call, Julia. So again, the longer, uh, the more time passes, the greater the likelihood that this united front will begin to crumble. And of course, that is worrying uh, for NATO generally. Jen Stoltenberg also there. We listened to a moment for what he had to say, also saying that uh, what he intended to do, what NATO would do, depending on the situation, was continue uh, to build up its troops if that proved necessary. And for that to be possible, Julia, unity is essential. Yes, and no one wants to give uh, Russia the opportunity perhaps to uh, utilise the cracks that appear in that united front too. Um, Kylie, come in here because the White House suggested that someone was leaking falsehoods, and I'm, I'm quoting as a result of this call, but just based on what Melissa was saying and, and the rhetoric that we're all seeing, there's clearly a, a disconnect in the views, at least those presented on the outwards. Yeah, that's right. And I think the readouts that we got from this call, you know, differing perspectives, of course, uh, from some of those Ukrainians who spoke with our colleague Matthew Chance and from the White House who spoke with our colleagues who cover the White House, demonstrates what we have actually seen in the public eye thus far, right? You have heard the Biden administration repeatedly over the last few weeks uh, say that a Russian invasion of Ukraine 
could be imminent, really putting people on high alert, taking a lot of action to make sure that everyone knows that this could be coming and it could be coming soon. And then you have the Ukrainians who have been saying they don't think it's as imminent. They want to maintain some sense of calm in their own country, of course, while they work alongside the U.S. and other allies in Europe to make sure that there are going to be high cost for Russia if they do invade. So it's not altogether surprising that there are differing accounts coming out of this call because there have been some tensions between the United States and Ukraine over the last few days. Uh, and that clearly, you know, was presented was a facet of this conversation between the two leaders. But more importantly, even, uh, you know, set aside the imminent versus not imminent uh, nature of this confusion and, you know, disagreement between the U.S. and the Ukrainians, there are also disagreements between the U, uh, between the two, excuse me, on the more fundamental uh, fact of how this issue should right now be dealt with. And the Biden administration has repeatedly said that they have high cost sanctions, that they are ready to implement the minute that Russia invades Ukraine. But the Ukrainians are saying, look, why not implement those sanctions now? Why not do something to prevent Russia from going further, to prevent it from continuing uh, this military buildup? And so that is a very key difference. We haven't seen any indication that the Biden administration is moving away from its perspective that sanctions should be a deterrent and that they should be used to uh, sort of keep on the table as a threat, not towards implementing them anytime soon. But that is a really interesting one to look at. And the Biden administration, while they're talking to Ukraine about all of this, is certainly, as uh, you guys have been discussing, in touch with all its European allies to try and get everyone on the same page if Russia does move forth, because that is going to make any cost that is inflicted on Russia all the greater. Mm. Kylie Atwood, Ms. Bell, thank you for that. Okay, just one week to go until the Beijing Winter Olympics. The event is facing diplomatic boycotts over China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims as authorities battle to keep COVID at bay. CNN's Ivan Watson joins us now from Hong Kong. Ivan, great to have you with us. I feel like for, in some ways for China, this can't come soon enough. Every day risks a greater chance of more COVID cases and the likelihood that they have to take more stringent measures in Beijing itself, which is the last thing they want. Yeah, I mean, it is striking. As the countdown ticks down, the, the COVID case count just keeps going up. Uh, we have a map that we can show you of confirmed cases uh, of Omicron, just the Omicron variant, all across China. And that's all the more striking because, of course, the Chinese government has this zero COVID policy where any outbreak of the virus is supposed to be extinguished, stamped out. And it shows the, the uphill battle that the authorities are facing there. And that goes for Beijing as well, uh, because they are seeing the COVID case going up both inside the Olympic bubble, uh, this so-called closed loop that will have thousands of athletes and journalists and coaches and Olympic organizers, uh, but also outside of the bubble in the general population of Beijing, the Chinese capital, where the authorities are battling outbreaks of both Omicron and the Delta variants and having to impose these these very draconian measures, not only locking down entire neighborhoods or having millions of people take COVID tests, but if you want to buy an over-the-counter 
cold or fever medicine, you have to get a negative COVID test and you have to register on your government app on your phone ahead of time, which sets off red flags that you may be ill. Uh, These are just some of the measures that are underway here. Uh, Inside the Olympic bubble, uh, there have been at least 141 cases uh, confirmed. And this raises the stakes for the athletes who've spent years training for these games. CNN, we've been talking to some of these athletes who describe their their fear and paranoia in countries that have, you know, hundreds of thousands of COVID cases confirmed a day. They're trying to to not catch the virus in these final hours. They have to take get negative COVID tests twice before they're allowed on the plane to Beijing. And if they test positive upon arrival, they will be sent into isolation. And at least two dozen athletes had to withdraw from last summer's uh, Tokyo Olympics because they tested positive. That is the worst case scenario. Now, I'm going to show you one last element here, uh, Julia. And this is a video from an athlete from here in Hong Kong, a, a speed skater, sent us to here at CNN showing the extremes that... Olympic organizers are going to to try to protect their athletes. Uh, he says he's one of only two or three people on the entire chartered flight, uh, an example of how they're trying to protect their own athletes from any possible risk of contracting this virus. Julia. Wow. The extent that you have to go to. I saw one comment from one competitor saying at the moment they're just treating everyone like they have COVID. They just are being so careful about who they talk to, where they go, what they do. Um, A whole additional layer of stress in addition to competing. Ivan, great to have you with us. Thank you. Ivan Watson there. Okay, no supply chain spoilage at Apple. The tech giant reported record holiday quarterly sales of nearly $124 billion. That's up 11% year on year, thanks to strong demand for the ever popular iPhone. CNN's Paula Monica joins me now. Just a mere $6 billion plus cost in terms of the supply chain challenges versus far higher expectations, I believe. But it's costing in other ways because they're shipping a lot of the supplies into the iPhone to the detriment of things like iPads. Yeah, this is uh, definitely a case, Julia, where Apple had to make some, I think, some difficult choices and investors clearly not disappointed the stock up on this news. And you're right, because of supply chain constraints with chips, Apple made the concerted, concerted effort to really try and juice, if you will, iPhone sales as much as possible with a new iPhone model just coming out. So that was to the detriment of iPad revenue, which slipped in the quarter. But I think Tim Cook's comments on the call about supply chain issues abating definitely will go a long way towards alleviating some of the concerns that investors have about whether or not Apple would face longer term problems due to supply chain uh, constraints. And and I don't think that's going to be an issue at all, especially with those iPhone numbers being as phenomenal as they were. Yeah, I mean, this doesn't get more juicy or maybe it does. But phones accounting for 58 percent of total revenues, the top five selling smartphones in the US and Australia, all iPhones, top four in urban China, all iPhones. Wowzers is all I can say. And and the other part of the business that we always look to and I think is interesting, particularly as we push forward, is the subscription side of the business. And they saw enormous growth in that part of the business, too. Yeah, growth for things like Apple Music, Apple TV Plus, uh, iCloud. 
clearly very, very robust. All of those Apple iPhone users are subscribing to other monthly services, and that is clearly benefiting Apple, Apple's revenues as well. And one final number that I find astonishing that we'll see what Apple does with it, especially in light of Microsoft just using a lot of its cash for this Activision Blizzard gaming deal, Apple finished the quarter with $202.6 billion in cash on its balance sheet, Julia. That is a staggering amount of money burning a hole in Tim Cook's pocket. I'd love to have that somewhere in my couch, a small fraction of it. I do not. First thing you'd buy? <laughs> Probably Apple stock, to be honest. I mean, no, I mean, <laughs> okay. It would be very interesting to see whether or not Tim Cook uses some of that money for Apple acquisitions. The company has done some deals, but nothing to the extent that Microsoft has, especially in gaming. Yeah, I was about to say that. That's actually where I was going, rather than where you were going to splash the cash. I was just wondering if you were going to say Peloton, whether Apple was going to buy Peloton. But that's a whole, that's a whole other conversation. And I'm being told to move on. I think, Tim Cook, I think Tim Cook has better use of his money than uh, a company like Peloton that's really fallen on hard times, to put it in my Super cheap, though, and subscription, and a lot of wealthy people, mainly wealthy people that buy so Peloton. I, yeah. I don't think Apple's going to buy that. We'll have this discussion again. Paula Monica, thank you for that and have a great weekend. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Motorists in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania escaped with minor injuries after a snow-covered bridge partially collapsed on Friday morning. One driver telling CNN he and others couldn't stop before it gave way. The collapse also caused a natural gas line in the area to break. Police in London are asking British officials to limit what, it publish, what is published in a completed report on Downing Street's lockdown parties. Metropolitan Police are investigating Partygate, quote, and they don't want the report to reveal details. They say doing so could compromise their investigation. OK, coming up on First Move, zero COVID consequences. Why China's extreme protections may have increased the risks and GM's U.S. president on the online used car market race. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move Live from New York, where we're bracing for a winter weather blast this weekend. Stormy times on Wall Street, too. U.S. futures volatile. Strong Apple earnings not really doing much to lift overall sentiment, as you can see. The dollar also trading near 18-month highs as investors anticipate higher yields that could incise entice cash from overseas investors. But remember, a higher dollar can also pressure profits for U.S. multinationals. Take a look at these gains in the energy market complex too. Brent crude hitting $91 a barrel again amid heightened Ukrainian tensions. Natural gas spiking over 12%. It's actually up more than 70% year over year. There's certainly messaging going on and continuing in the energy markets. And that takes us back to our top story today, the crisis over Ukraine. Russia's top diplomat saying Moscow will not start a war. If it is up to the Russian Federation, there will be no war. We don't want a war. 
but we will not allow our interests to be trampled on. I cannot say that the negotiations are over because, uh, as you know, NATO and the US took more than a month to study our uh, very clear proposals, uh, some grains of reason there uh, on certain issues, for example, um, which um, is important, such as intermediate-range uh, missiles. This comes after President Biden warned Ukraine that Russia could launch an invasion as early as next month. Today, Vladimir Putin held a phone call with French President Emmanuel Macron. Let's get some perspective now. Joining us uh, is former CNN Moscow bureau chief Jill Doherty. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Jill, great to have you on the show with us. There's clearly a lot of rhetoric, some fierier than others. Can you cut through some of the noise? What's your perspective at this moment? I think this very moment, um, there's a lot of signaling, talking, etc. But it, let's take it from the Kremlin's perspective. Right now, R President Putin and his staff have that response, or th I should say those responses from the United States and from NATO to the demands that Russia made. You just heard the reference to that uh, from Foreign Minister Lavrov. So they are Looking at those, uh, they've given negative signals so far. They haven't been specific, but what essentially what they're saying is, look, on some specific issues, and one of them would be the placement of missiles in Europe or uh, warning about um, military ex exercises in Europe. On those, yes, we could talk about that. But on the big issue, what Russia really wants, this revamping of the uh, post-Cold War space in Europe, we're not hearing that from the West, and so we're not happy. But they haven't come back yet. So we're looking for President Putin. What will he say? It probably won't be immediate. may take a little while, but that's the state of play there. Then on the other side, you have, I think, the NATO allies, the United States, um, with a, a number of things going on. The message there is, yes, we're united. I was just listening to uh, an interview with the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, and uh, the message is, yes, we're united. We know what we're doing, all for one, one for all, et cetera. But um, what's happening, too, is you have President Macron of France speaking with Vladimir Putin, and he will be speaking, we understand, with uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky later today. That's kind of the French taking a little bit of an independent idea that they have a plan. President Macron has a plan that potentially could solve this. Then you have the German side of it, which is the defense minister uh, saying, I, th I think very interestingly, that Nord Stream 2, which is that gas pipeline going, uh, going from Russia to Germany, that might be a part of the sanctions. So there's a lot going on. I, I didn't even mention the conversation between the Ukrainian president and <laughs> President Putin. So <laughs> you have to kind of keep your... your Tough to uh, keep up. <laughs> yeah, focus. I, I think of it as two sides of a sheet, a big legal pad. One side is what's happening in Russia. One, one side is what's happening with NATO. Oh, you said the magic phrase there. And part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you was because you wrote 
what I considered a great piece for CNN.com talking about the Russian people's perspective and the viewpoint that we keep talking about and you and I here now talking about what NATO is doing and what the West is doing and what we think is going on. But what, what currently, amid a troop buildup on the border, amid the rhetoric that we see from Ukraine, what are the Russian people seeing, hearing and feeling based on your experiences of spending many years there? Well, if they are watching television and young people as a, you know, as a whole don't really watch TV, they're on the web, but people who are watching Russian TV are seeing kind of a different picture. What they're seeing is, you know, those two breakaway republics in the <clears throat> east of Ukraine that are uh, being supported by Russia. They are seeing reports that they are under attack from the Ukrainians, that it's getting more and more difficult for the civilians there. So the message is we should help those breakaway republics, maybe, as uh, is happening in the Russian parliament right now, maybe recognize them as independent entities. That's one thing. Or at least help them with more weapons, more support, et cetera. They, now, if you know, if you that's watching TV, if you look at the polls and there is very interesting recent mm. poll, it shows that about 50 percent of the Russian people do not believe that there will be a war between NATO and Ukraine. However, they are very concerned about NATO and Russia. And who do they blame for all of this uh, instability and the, the um, let's say, impending ideas of impending conflict? They blame NATO. About half of them blame NATO. And only three to four percent blame Russia. So I think that's that's where you are. I, I, I think, Julia, you know, the bottom line, and I was talking to a Russian, um, actually, who is very versed in polls. And what they're saying is the Russian people don't really want to think about this because this is very scary. They don't, but they, you know, most of them say, I don't believe it's going to happen. In the same breath, they're fearful that it would ha will happen. And they're fearful about war. So there's a bit of kind of, don't tell me about that. It's too scary going on. Yeah, one of the things that came out in your article was fatigue, that people are fatigued about hearing about Ukraine as well, which I do think is important. I, I think my question would be, the key question is, how much public resistance would there be to a potential invasion or incursion in Ukraine? And if there is resistance, is that providing enough cover perhaps for Putin to say, look, those exercises at the border, the 100,000 troops, you know, we've, we've done our job now, we're going to move away. Is the political cover for that from the people if they are exhausted with just the whole concept of Ukraine and resistant to invasion? You know, the Russian people are exhausted. But that said, remember, I was talking about the news constantly about those breakaway republics. I think Russians look at that and say, hey, our uh, compatriots, Russian speakers in the eastern part of Ukraine are really in danger. And we do not want war. This is all in quotes. We don't want war. But if it happens, if those people are attacked or something dangerous happens, we're going to have to support them. So I think that's where you have the government. I would have to believe that most Russians would support action by Russia, but they would frame it as defensive, that Russia didn't cause it, the West did, NATO did, and we are forced to answer. Mm. Jill, great to have you with us. Thank you for your insight today. Jill Doherty there, former CNN Moscow bureau chief. The market opens next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on the final trading day of the week, and it's pretty volatile. The blue chips a little bit softer. As you can see, their global bond yields are also higher across the board as investors continue to price in the greater likelihood of central bank rate hikes in the United States. Wells Fargo saying today that it sees five Federal Reserve rate hikes this year as Powell and company intensify their inflation battle. Mohamed Alarian, a frequent guest on this program, says this about market and rate hike uncertainty. Quote, there's clarity on what we are leaving, but confusion on where we are going. I think that's perfectly put. Apple, meanwhile, trading higher after posting record revenues, but sizable declines for trading app Robinhood. The firm forecasting a Q1 revenue decline of some 35 percent, that despite the volatility. Robinhood seeing a big drop in user activity as once high-flying growth stocks fall back to earth. Now, more than two years into the pandemic and one week out from the Beijing Olympics, China stands alone in maintaining a zero-COVID approach to tackling the virus. That's meant mass testing and draconian lockdown measures for millions of people with, at times, very little notice. It also means very little natural immunity in the population, even though China says it's administered almost 3 billion vaccine doses. My next guest believes China is now one of the most vulnerable countries in the world. And joining us to discuss is Yang Zhongwang. He's senior fellow for the global health at the Council of Foreign Relations. So great to have you on the show. I guess in the very short term, do you think they can get through the Beijing Olympics unscathed without seeing some kind of lockdown measures required in Beijing? Well, that is a good question that uh, certainly I think Beijing um, still believe that the situation in the city is under control. There are flare-ups, you know, you know, but uh, they're confident uh, that uh, with tightened uh, pandemic control measures, the situation uh, will continue to be under control without turning to forced city-wide lockdown measures. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one here. And, and to the bigger point that you've made, which is they are now vulnerability. Yes, they vaccinated some three billion people, they say, but the relative efficacy of their vaccines is is lower. They don't have natural immunity because they've simply not allowed people to get sick with with covid. Are they able at this stage to just say, look, we're going to ease this policy, even if they don't say it out loud? We're going to try and transition to what much of the West is now doing, which is living with covid can China even do that? Well, I do believe that is uh, um, going to happen uh, sooner or later, uh, but not not now. Right? Uh, with the Winter Olympics, I think uh, their foremost priority is to make sure right, no disruption to the games. Right? So, you know, certainly easing up uh, the, uh, this, the, um, the COVID uh, zero measures, you know, will potentially leads to larger outbreaks, that is not something that Beijing wants to see happen. But uh, I do believe that after Winter Olympics, you know, there is a policy window uh, that is open for uh, at least introduction of certain flexibility to the implementation. What policy measures have to be done in order to allow that? I mean, they need to have COVID pills, I'm assuming, perhaps booster shots for the most vulnerable people, surge capacity in the healthcare system, because as we've seen elsewhere in the world, a lot of people are going to get sick. That's just the way this works if you're trying to live with it. Well, exactly. Why do you, that means you have to shift the strategy from containment to mitigation, basically mm. focusing on uh, significantly reducing the risk of severe cases and deaths. That means, as you 
uh, correctly pointed out, right, the availability of more effective vaccines as booster shots, right, the availability of more effective therapeutic means. But in the meantime, I, I think it is also important to educate the public, right, so that they could develop a correct idea, right, that exactly what the threat is, right, the scientific understanding of the risk posed to the virus, I think it is also vital. How do the people feel? Because I sort of made the comparison with year one that the rest of the world was in and China's there now. In year one, most of the world was frightened. Lockdown was okay because people were frightened of getting COVID and frightened of dying. How do the Chinese people feel about these persistent lockdowns and the extreme measures? Are they okay with it because they're frightened? And it goes to your point about sort of re-educating. We can live with this. Well, I think it depends on where you are, right? Certainly when you're in the city that's directly hit by the virus, the, the outbreak, right? And you are subject to the lockdown measures. You found it really inconvenient. You found you were like victimized by those uh, stringent government control measures. You, know, you, you don't, you're not happy with that. But for you know, those, the people who are not directly um, affected by the pandemic, I think they are, you know, they seems to be happy, right? They live in a virus-free environment, you know, and they would uh, still support right, the government control measures, which they believe are very important right, to keep them safe. What's the longer-term consequences if they don't ease the zero-COVID policy, be it financial, economic, social? Well, I think when we talk about the long-term impact, well, certainly, right, that you're going to see the cost, right, increasing rapidly, right, uh, because you have to rely on even more draconian measures in order to get things done. And in the meantime, you're going to see, right, the very likely, right, this virus is going to affect more people, more localities. So the social economic cost is going to increase exponentially. So that raises right, the sustainability issues for the other uh, strategies. So sooner or later, you're going to see the cost exceed the benefits, you know, not to mention right, that, that there's also the problem, you know, that strategy may no longer work in terms of preventing right, the, the uh, quick spread of the virus. You know, basically the entire country could be engulfed you know, by the pandemic. Yeah, some severe risks. Sir, great to have you with us. Yang John Wang there, the Senior Fellow for Global Health at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you for joining us. Thanks okay, for coming up. Me. Thank you. Coming up after the break, General Motors muscling in on America's online used car market. Will its rivals be hitting the hazard lights? We'll discuss. Welcome back to First Move and a new road for General Motors. It's veering into the online news car market, putting it head to head with established players in the United States like Carvana, Vroom and CarMax. The pandemic and the chip shortage have heightened demand for used cars and GM's offering called Car Bravo will sell cars sitting on dealers' forecourts. And that includes non-GM vehicles too. The sheer scale of its inventory and its servicing capabilities may well be setting off some warning lights among its competitors. Here to discuss, Steve Carla is president of General Motors North America. Steve, fantastic to have you with us. Um, let's talk about Car Bravo. The linchpin feels like how many of these dealerships you get on board, how many you've already got on board, and you can tell me, because that time to how big the inventory will be available for potential buyers? 
Well, good morning, and uh, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about Car Bravo. We're really excited about it. Uh, I'd say early days in terms of uh, how many dealers uh, we've signed up. We made the announcement uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we're on the road right now uh, signing dealers up. What I would say is that the, the interest is uh, is very high. We have a, a nationwide network of uh, 4,000 or so locations, and, and I'd say the interest is uh, is very high. I, I think as we get out there, everyone's seeing the the benefit and the and the power of uh, our car, car Bravo. So we're we're very enthusiastic of the reception we're going to get. We'll have more to say about how many and uh, and so on as we get uh, towards the end of the quarter. So you can't even give us a hint. I mean, I can tell my viewers, Carvana, which is a, a competitor, has around fifty five thousand cars for sale. Is it fair to say by the spring, when you officially launch, you'll have plenty more than that? Oh, if, if you're talking about cars, at, at any moment in time, we have about 400,000 uh, used cars uh, throughout our network. Uh, on an annual basis, uh, we sell throughout our network about 2.5 million uh, used cars. So um, inventory is uh, def, def, access to inventory is uh, definitely uh, one of our advantages. We, we get our used cars. Um, they come as a result of uh, trade-ins on the new car business. They come as... Uh, Customers are turning in their their leased vehicles, and they come as uh, we take cars back from uh, our uh, rental car companies. So uh, we, we're in a, a very good position in terms of having uh, good numbers of inventory as well as uh, as a great selection. And as uh, you alluded to, uh, Car Bravo, uh, we're going to market on an all makes all models basis, which is uh, is a unique aspect. I mean, that's a lot of used car sales. What proportion of those do you think is reasonable to be done online once this is up and running? Yeah, well, the way we're approaching that is it's a user choice. So Car Bravo, um, it's a platform. Uh, it's it's omni-channel, so it's it's up to you. You can do as much of the the shopping and the transactional aspects as you wish online, uh, or you can do as much of of it, um, you know, with a dealer in a physical location as you want. The the research uh, would say whether it's new or used, about seventeen percent of people prefer to uh, to complete the complete transaction online. Um, and then there's another um, component at the other end of the distribution that prefer to do it all in a dealer location. But uh, what most customers tell us, the vast majority, 70 odd percent, that they prefer a, a mixed experience of uh, depending on where they are in the process to do some of that online, uh, but then to do uh, some of it um, in a physical location. It, it's such a big and emotional purchase. Um, you know, that there is always that um, in-person uh, physical component to the total experience. And what's going to be the, the cut for the dealership as well? Is there going to be an incentive to sell online? To your point, like some people like doing it some way, some people like doing it others. But is there a risk that it cannibalizes their sort of in-person dealership sales here? Um, because they're in a great position. I mean, you're already warning some of your guys not to push it on pricing because demand is so high. Well, the, the way it works is uh, the, the, the inventory uh, that's visible online to the consumer, it's a combination of what's on the dealer lot already. It's, it's their inventory, always has been, always will be. Um, and then there's also access to um, essential inventory. And the essential inventory is made up of uh, the lease returns that I spoke about, as well as the vehicles that are coming back to us from the, the rental companies. So... Um, and it all ends up being transacted um, uh, through the dealer, right? So there, there's no real um, issue there. So the, the upside from a, a dealer point of view, it's the same as the, 
um, as the consumer is that they get access to a much uh, broader pool of uh, yeah. industry and uh, a much broader uh, view of customers. Yeah. I want to ask you about current supply shortages while we're talking about it. Your total sales for, for GM were down what around 13 percent, um, I believe, last year tied to the semiconductor shortages, although we saw a pickup in production um, at the back end of last year. Um, what what are you looking ahead towards for this year? Can you recover your title as America's top auto seller? Snatch it back from Toyota. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's certainly the goal. Uh, well, the outlook for this year, first of all, start with the industry. The industry looks robust. There's still a lot of uh, pent up demand out there, uh, notwithstanding some of the headwinds that that uh, that you talked about. So, uh, we see an industry that's. Um, uh, quite a lot larger than where we finished uh, last year, uh, 2021, uh, kind of in the 16 and a half million unit range for new cars, um, and uh, that that's really going to be a function of uh, of supply. And uh, on the supply side, we do see that uh, uh, improving steadily, even in this quarter, uh, in terms of the chips to support production. Uh, but then also as we go through the through the year. Now, all that said, it's uh, you know, notwithstanding um, other events that we don't know about at the moment, we certainly experienced um, our share of those uh, through the course mm. of the year last year, <laughs> as did the industry. But it, it looks better this year, and uh, the consumer looks to be in uh, in good shape. And uh, we have a, a great range of uh, of new and exciting product that's been very well received. So we're uh, we're optimistic and leaning into 2022. So Toyota, you've been warned um, very quickly to talk about the speed bumps that you sort of mentioned there, and um, the Chevy Bolt. Uh, EV, you recalled over 140,000 of them for, for battery replacements, and that's meant very little production in the last quarter. That's meant a lot of speculation that you plan to, to phase this one out. What's the plan, Steve? What can you tell us? Well, when, when we approached that situation, which was unfortunate, you know, our focus mm-hmm. is uh, clearly on the customers and the current owners and to, um, and to get their vehicles uh, repaired and, and back to normal. And uh, well, we've been working through that process and so far very successfully. So we'll continue with that uh, commitment. And certainly it's our goal to get back into production, uh, selling new Bolt and Bolt EUVs uh, here as soon as we can here in the, in, the, in the new year. So we have a few steps to go through still, but that's certainly our, our goal. And uh, for the record, we have, uh, we have no intention of uh, curtailing uh, anything on the Bolt or the Bolt EUV. Uh, we're very enthusiastic about its... Uh, um, about its uh, prospects. Um, it's done very well in the marketplace. Uh, they're our most loyal customers and most satisfied. So uh, we see a, a long life ahead for the Bolt and the Bolt EUV. We got it. No bolting on the Bolt at GM. We heard it. <laughs> can I use that? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you I can. I'll that. give it to you. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Steve Carlisle, Executive Vice President and President of General Motors in North America. So thank you for joining us on the show. All right. Thank you. Appreciate thank you. it. All right, coming up after the break, keep your eyes on the skies. Could those east-west tensions extend as far as the International Space Station? We'll explore next. Welcome back to First Move. The final frontier, there are fears that tensions between the United States and Russia on the ground could extend all the way to space. Space and defence correspondent Kristen Fisher joins us now. Kristen, always great to have you on the show. It's tended to reach beyond geopolitics on the ground, at least in the past. Is this time different? Because some astronauts you've been speaking to are a little worried. 
That's right. I've spoken with about a dozen former astronauts, many of whom spent uh, quite a bit of time up on the International Space Station. And there, some of them are, are quite concerned that, yes, perhaps this time things could be different. And it's important to remember the, the history of this, right? The International Space Station has been up there for more than 20 years. Russian cosmonauts, U.S. astronauts working so closely together. And yet, so far, any political tensions that have happened between the U.S. and Russia 250 miles below the space station, uh, have remained very isolated. The space station and what happens up there has been very insulated from those political tensions. And in fact, I spoke with two of the NASA astronauts that were on board the space station the last time Russia invaded Ukraine back in 2014. And they told me that at no point did anyone in mission control in Houston or in the mission control in Moscow, did anyone ever say anything to them about what was happening on the ground in Ukraine? So that gives you an idea of just how insulated they are. But I also spoke with some astronauts, including former NASA astronaut Garrett Reisman, who spent 95 days up there. And he says he's worried that if this current crisis evolves into an actual shooting conflict, that this could potentially be the end of the International Space Station. And Julia, part of the reason why is because things are so closely connected up in space. These astronauts share everything from, you know, uh, electricity, propulsion, ele uh, exercise equipment. I mean, all sorts of things, even their urine. They actually recycle each other's urine, which they then drink. So it's impossible to really divorce these two segments, the Russian segment from the U.S. segment. But NASA Administrator Bill Nelson is confident that this partnership in space, the International Space Station, is going to survive and continue because the Biden administration just announced that they want to extend it all the way to 2030. Julia? You know, I didn't realize the relationship was so intimate, quite frankly. And I remember the last time we had you on the show, we were discussing people wearing nappies or, or pampers. <laughs> Diapers, so, I mean, yes. Just, this tops that, and I didn't believe that was possible. Um, yes, fingers crossed the relationship continues to transcend the geopolitics on the ground. Um, Kristen, great to have you on the show, as always. Thank you. Good to see you, Kristen Julia. Fischer, Thank you. Okay, that's it for the show. Stay safe. Have a great weekend and connect the world with Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you next week. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.